if you were uh, to be standing in Jerusalem today, I know we're not, uh, but if you were standing in the city of Jerusalem, if you were to go out of the city about 10 miles southwest, you would arrive near a place that is a vast expanse of land, a, a large valley surrounded on two sides by hills. Now, not mountains, really. They're just um, hills. And the valley that you would be standing in is called the Valley of Elah, or the Elah Valley. Now, the Elah Valley is the, is the site of one of the most epic battles to occur in human history and one of the most brief battles to ever occur. It was the battle between David and Goliath. Now, interestingly for us, this location, the Valley of Elah, and our text today in 1 Samuel 17 um, are especially significant to us as a church here at Brookstone because the name of our church, the name Brookstone, was derived from the events in this exact valley. The name Brookstone comes from what occurred uh, there in the Valley of Elah. In fact, would you say that name out loud with me? Just say the name of your church out loud. Just say Brookstone. This, this idea of a brook and a stone, you're going to see it in our text today in, uh, in 1 Samuel 17. What happens in this passage is that David goes down into a brook, which is in the valley, and he chooses out the stone which will be placed in his very accurate sling. And from that sling will find its way into the center of the forehead of a giant by the name of Goliath. And that giant will fall. And as a church family here at Brookstone, we understand our mission and vision. We know it clearly that it is our purpose in this world literally to slay the giants of hell. You know, our vision statement says we believe that Jesus came to build a church that would overpower the forces of hell and enlarge the kingdom of God. Literally, we recognize that we exist to bring down the forces of hell, to slay the forces of hell, and to enlarge the kingdom of God. And it's for that reason that we have chosen the name Brookstone. Because here on our property, just like in that valley 10 miles southwest of Jerusalem, here in this valley just north of Weaverville, there is a brook that runs in the valley. And it is our hope, it's our prayer, it's our desire that God will take each one of us and that we will be the stones that he will choose to accomplish a great work in the world. And so every time you say the name of your church, every time somebody says to you, hey, where do you go to church? You, and you say, I go to Brookstone. Or every time you invite somebody, hey, why don't you come to Brookstone with me? Don't ever forget where the name came from. That we're asking God that we would be the stones out of his brook. Well, let me welcome you into the second week of this nine-week journey. We're just getting started in this series that we, uh, in which we are considering the life of David, who would become King David. We're calling this series Footsteps of 
the king. Last week, we began with the most obvious place, the thing that was the defining characteristic in David's life. It is that the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. And we talked about what that looks like, what it means, and how you and I can be men and women after God's own heart as well. Today, we are coming to chapter number 17 of 1 Samuel, and we're going to talk about David's battle as he faces off with this Philistine champion by the name of Goliath. Now we have a lot of ground to cover and so we're going to jump right in. You've got your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 17. Look at the very beginning of the chapter verses 1, 2, and 3 give us a lot of important information as they tell us about the location of this battle. Verse 1 says, Now the Philistines had gathered together their armies to battle and they were assembled together at a place called Soko which belongs to Judah, and pitched between Soko and Azekah in a place that is called Ephes-Damim. Ephes-Damim. Verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel, they were gathered together also, and they had pitched by the valley of Elah, and they had set the battle in array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on one mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the other mountain, the opposing or the opposite mountain, on the other side, and there was a great valley between them. Now, the name Ephes Damim is an interesting name. It's this place it has this title or designation of Ephes Damim. Here's what the, the word means it means the boundary of blood. Think about this the boundary of blood or the, the border of blood. And it was called this quite probably because this is the place where the empire of the Philistines and the empire of the Israelites met. It was the border or the boundary where they would often come together and have clashes, where they would fight against one another. Let me give you a little bit of history about the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. This will help you. If you remember back to the book of Judges, when Joshua, I'm sorry, the book of Joshua, when Joshua leads the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, into modern day Israel, they come into the land from the east, okay, from the Jordan side. So they cross the Jordan River, they approach the land traveling or moving westward, coming from the east. They cross the Jordan River, through the Jordan Valley, up over the Judean hills, and down into the coastal plain, and driving out the inhabitants as they went. Until they reached that coastal plain, which was inhabited by the Philistines. The Philistines were people who lived along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And when the Israelites crossed over the mountains and they ran into the border of that Philistine territory, their progress stopped. They were unable to drive the Philistines initially out of the land. The Philistines had five strong cities in that coastal plain, and they resisted the Israelite army. Well, this is where the Philistines from the west met the Israelites from the east, and that border was called the border of blood, Ephes Damim. Now, verse number three tells us that they gather at this border in the valley of Elah, and they fight. Skirmishes occur there. They're battling back and forth with one another. But the armies are encamped on opposing hillsides, opposing 
hilltops. Now, I wanted you to really understand this place today, so I brought a picture. This is a place where we visit when we, when we travel to the Holy Land, and so I want you to take a close look at this picture. This is our group from, uh, one of our groups from 2019. Some of you will see yourself in this picture. But we're standing at the very end, the very tip of the Valley of Elah. You can't really see the full valley. It, it goes up over that hill and there's a vast expanse out through the fields. But if you look to the left at about 11 o'clock on the picture, you'll see a slope of a hill coming down. That slope is the slope of the hills where the Philistine army would have been camping. And then if you look to the middle of the picture, you'll see another hill rising to the right. And that would be a portion of or the area of the hill country where the Israelite army would assemble. They were on those two opposing hills and the valley of Elah spread out between them. Also notice in this picture the dry riverbed. Do you see the brook? We're all standing in the brook. And the reason we're standing in that dry riverbed is because we, like David, wanted to pick up a stone to remember our time there. So we, we all went down into the riverbed or the brook, uh, which is dry now, and, um, and picked up a stone. The, the, the brook or the riverbed is dry now most of the year. But it's not dry all the time. Look at the second picture. This is the exact same location. That picture was taken last January during the rainy season. So during the rainy season, water still flows through that brook. That's the location where the Israelite army, the Philistine army came together and they are skirmishing in the valley. Now, verses 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel uh, 17 describe for us Goliath. I want to read this to you because he is an imposing uh, man that you need to understand. Verse number 4 says, And there went out, there's these armies are gathered at the valley of Elah, there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines. His name was Goliath of Gath. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail or a coat of armor. The weight of his coat of armor was, was 5,000 shekels of brass. Uh, he had greaves of brass or essentially shin guards upon his legs and a target of brass or a javelin uh, between his shoulders. Uh, the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His spear's head was made of iron. It weighed 600 shekels of iron. It's about 15 pounds. And he had another person, another man, going before him bearing um, a shield. So I want you to think about this description of Goliath of Gath. The Bible, first of all, says he's a champion. A champion of the Philistine army. That means he's the greatest and most victorious soldier of all of their army. Verse 33 of this chapter tells us that he's a veteran, a battle-hardened veteran. He's been a warrior for many, many years. He's also, the text says, an incredibly large man. He's a giant, in fact. The Bible describes him in verse number four as being this tall, six cubits and a span. Now, this is the way they measured in those days, and a cubit is simply this. It's an approximate measurement. It goes from the elbow of a man's arm to the tip of a man's middle finger, and on the average man, that's about 18 inches. A cubit is 18 inches, and a span is the span of a man's hand. From the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky finger, for most men, that's about nine inches. He was six cubits 
and a span. Now, when you do the math and convert that into feet and inches, do you know how tall uh, Goliath was? You ready? I'm going to tell you. Here it is. Goliath stood nine feet and nine inches tall. Help me out. Tell your neighbor, that's tall. Tell him, that's tall. Nine feet and nine inches tall. Here stands Goliath, the greatest warrior of the Philistine army, a nine foot, nine inch tall giant who is completely shielded with armor. He's wearing a coat of armor. He's so big and strong, his coat of armor wears nearly, weighs nearly 150 pounds. He has brass shin guards on. He's got a helmet on. He has a man in front of him carrying a shield. He carries with him a spear that the Bible says the staff of the spear is like a weaver's beam, 10 feet long probably, and the tip of the spear is made of iron, and it's so large it weighs 15 pounds. This is a man that no person would want to fight in battle. He truly is a giant of a man. Which, by the way, brings up a question that I really feel like I need to stop and deal with for just a few minutes. And it is this question of giants in the Bible. Because the Bible talks about giants. And we need to ask the question are the giants in the Bible truly? giants. And when the Bible says that he was six cubits in a span or nine feet, nine inches tall, is that a figure of speech? Is it just uh, illustrative kind of descriptive language? Or is it truly how tall Goliath was? Are there truly giants that existed in the Bible? Were they truly giants or were they just big people? Well, let's explore that for just a second, all right? I want you to hold your finger in 1 Samuel 17 and go back to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter number 6, and I want to show you the very first mention of giants in the Scriptures. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 4. Now, if you know your Bible, uh, you know that Genesis 6 is the chapter of the great flood, so this is the chapter in which God is going to uh, raise up Noah, have him build the, the ark, and then he will flood the earth. So look at Genesis 6 and verse 4. It says, there were giants in the earth uh, in those days. Now stop right there. The word that's translated giants, the Hebrew word, is Nephilim. Nephilim. And you see this word a number of times throughout the Old Testament, Nephilim. And here's why you see it after Genesis chapter 6. Look at the next words. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. If y'all are listening, shout amen. There were giants in the land before the flood in those days. And there were giants in the land after the flood or after that. As verse number four says, there were Nephilim in the land before the flood. There were Nephilim in the land after the flood. Now, there were Nephilim in the land because the Bible says the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children unto them. And those became these mighty, powerful men of old who were men of renown or they were, uh, the word renown means they were infamous men. Now here's what we know. We know that the Nephilim or the giants were produced, according to verse 4, by the, the union, the sexual union between what are called in verse 4, the sons of God and the daughters of men. Okay, 
Now, there are a couple of different possibilities of what's in view here. Um, It's possible that the sons of God refers to the godly people in the world. That would be God's people or the godly line, the descendants of Seth. And that the daughters of men would refer to the ungodly line or the godless people in the world that would be the descendants of Cain. Okay? And that the godly and the ungodly came together and the result was what you see in verse number four, these giants being in the land. That's one possibility. There are plenty of people who believe that. There's another possibility. And the other possibility is that the sons of God doesn't refer to humans at all, but that it refers to uh, angels or spirits or specifically demonic spirits or fallen angels. And this phrase or this term, sons of God, is used multiple times in the scripture to refer to angels. Many people believe that this phrase, sons of God, is referring to fallen angels who either take on human form or who possess human men and then uh, uh, mate with ungodly women. And that the, and that the, the result of those unions, the, the offspring of those unions, are these Nephilim or these giants that were in the land. Now the truth is either one of those could be true We don't know for sure, can't be dogmatic of which one of those things is true. But here's what we can say. That the result of this union, this ungodly union, was at least in part what motivated God to bring about the flood. Because he says in the very next verse that God, that it repented God that he had made man, that he was going to bring uh, the flood upon the earth. Okay, So there were giants in the land before the flood and after the flood. Now, there's an interesting uh, passage in the book of Numbers. And I want you, of course, this is after the flood. Turn to Numbers 13. And I want you to look with me at what is said about the Nephilim uh, in the book of Numbers. So Numbers 13 records uh, when the Israelites have come out of Egypt, they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, and Moses takes 12 spies and sends them into the land to spy out the land. They come back. Uh, Ten of them give an evil report of the land. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, give a good report of the land. Now, look at chapter 13 of Numbers and verse number 33. Here's what the ten spies say about the land when they're speaking negatively about it. And we saw the giants, the sons of Anak there. The word giants is Nephilim. Same word from Genesis 6-4. We saw the Nephilim there. We saw the giants there, these sons of Anak. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers to them. They were this big and we were this big. So the Nephilim or the giants were in the land after the flood and they were observed by the spies that came in. Now some people might say, but the spies were giving a bad report. They didn't want to go in and fight. So they were building it up. They were exaggerating it. They saw some big dudes. And they called them Nephilim. Well, that might be what was going on. However, I don't think so because when Joshua and Caleb speak up, they don't deny the presence of the Nephilim. They don't say, no, there weren't any giants in the land. Those were just big dudes. No, they say, you know what? If God wants us to beat the giants, we'll beat the giants, right? And, 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 and so the Nephilim were there in the land of Canaan. I will also tell you, we'll see this uh, perhaps as we continue our study through David, 
is that the Bible says in, in uh, 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles that there were other giants other than Goliath, other giants that David and some of David's men defeated in battle. Now there's one other really, really important note about giants that I think will help you um, understand this. Let me just show it to you on the screen. It's Joshua chapter 20 and verse 10. These words are spoken by Rahab, the, the harlot of Jericho, when uh, two spies come in sent by Joshua just before they enter the land. Listen to what Joshua 2 and verse 10 says. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Now stop right there. Listen carefully. What you have in Joshua chapter 2 are these two men who have come into to Jericho. They encounter Rahab, who's a pagan ritual harlot in that city. She's talking to the first two Israelites she's ever seen in her life. And she starts telling them everything she knows about their God. Everything that she has heard about how their God has been protecting them and doing miraculous things for them. And she quotes or she, she mentions two miracles that she's heard that God did. And she's amazed by these things. Number one, we have heard how God dried up the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Well, you'd agree. That's a big miracle, right? If God dries and parts the Red Sea and they walk across on dry land, that's a massive miracle. And she knew about it. And she said, we've heard of your God. And the second miracle that she mentions is their military defeat. How the army under Moses defeated two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. And she equates, now listen, she equates the defeat of Sihon and Og with the parting of the Red Sea. And on the surface, it doesn't seem like you would put those two miracles side by side. I mean, parting of the Red Sea is a big deal. A military victory, that's good, but it doesn't equate to the parting of the Red Sea unless you know something about Sihon and Og. You see, the Amorites were descendants of the giants. The Bible tells us this in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Amos. When God speaks about the Amorites, he says they are as tall as cedars and they are as strong as oaks. And so Sihon and Og were in fact giants. And that's the reason that Rahab is so impressed that God had given them the victory over these massive giants of the Amorites. In fact, I'm going to read this to you from the book of Deuteronomy chapter number 3. I want you to look there with me. Deuteronomy chapter number 3. Listen to what the Bible says about Og, this Amorite king defeated by the Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter 3. If y'all are doing okay, shout amen. This is a bit of a sideline, but it's an important sideline to help you understand what's going to happen in 1 Samuel 17. Listen to Deuteronomy 3.11. For only Og... The king of Bashan remained of the remnants of the giants, a descendant of the giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bed made of iron. Now there's some question as, as to whether or not this bed is his sleeping bed. It might have been. But many people believe it was his final bed or his coffin. So they say his coffin was a coffin of iron. Is it not uh, in Raboth, uh, or Raboth, with the children of Ammon, nine cubits 
in length. Are you listening? The coffin, or the bed, either one, but the coffin, I believe, of Og, who was defeated by the Israelites under the leadership of Moses, his coffin was nine cubits long. Do the math. It's 13 feet long. And Rahab says, you defeated that giant king. Your God is mighty. If y'all are with me, say amen. Now go back to 1 Samuel 17. Here's what I want you to know. It is that in the days of the scriptures, there were people in the land who were much bigger and much stronger than you and I will ever be or that we have ever seen. They're filled. Uh, they're all through, I should say, the biblical narrative. And can you imagine facing off against such a giant? We're going to read about David facing off against Goliath. Look with me in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel and verse number 32. The Bible says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You can't go and fight against this Philistine. You're but a child, and he is a man of war from his childhood. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's Sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and I smote him, and I delivered the lamb out of his mouth. When he arose against me, I caught him by the beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. Skip to verse 40. So David took his staff in his hand. He chose for himself five smooth stones out of the brook. That's the brook we were looking at on the screen. He chose five smooth stones. He put them in his shepherd's bag. He had his sling in his hand, and he drew near to face the Philistine, and the Philistine came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before him, and the Philistine looked about and saw David, and he despised him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said to David, My dog, you think you're going to come fight with me with sticks and stones? The Philistine cursed David by his gods, and the Philistine said to David, Come to me, boy. I will, give you, I will give your flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will kill you. And I will take your head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save with sword and with spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. 
And it came to pass when the Philistine arose that he came and drew near to meet David. And David began to run and he hastened and he ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David, as he was running, put his hand into his bag and he pulled out a stone and he put the stone in the sling and he slang the stone and he smote the Philistine in the forehead so that the stone sunk in the forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. And all God's people said, Amen. What a great victory God gave Goliath or gave David over the giant Goliath. Now we all know the story. We're all very well acquainted with the story. So let's quickly move past the sights and sounds of the battle and let's talk for a minute about the about what the presence of Goliath on the battlefield meant. This is incredibly important. I want you to jot this down in your notes. I want you to think with me about a giant agenda. A giant agenda. And when you read the passage, when you read the entire chapter of chapter 17, it becomes really apparent that a stalemate is occurring in this battle. It's absolutely uh, a stalemate. Neither the Philistine army nor the Israeli army are making any progress at all. They're both camped on opposing hillsides. The battle lines are drawn in the valley. They come down. Skirmishes are occurring, but no army is making any progress. It is an absolute deadlock. And this deadlock could have been going on for many months. We know that it was going on for at least 40 days, but it could have been many, many weeks, even many months, that neither one of them were making any progress. And into that stalemate stepped Goliath. Goliath steps into the stalemate in verse number 16. It says he begins to threaten the Israeli army. He begins to rise up against them. And verse 16 says for 40 days, every morning and every night, for 40 days, Goliath stood and defied the army of Israel. Imagine this Israeli army. Day after day, night after night, morning after morning, it's the same every single day. They're not going anywhere. They're in the heat of that that Middle Eastern sun. They're wearing all of their armor. They want to make some progress. But every day there stands Goliath. Every day is like Groundhog Day. It's like the day before. It's all the same. Every morning they wake up to the taunting shouts of Goliath. Send me a man and we'll fight. Nobody will go fight him. And so every night they put their head back on their bed, on their pillow, in their tent. And they hear him going back to the camp saying, yeah, I thought so. Nobody will ever come and fight me. It's a stalemate. I want you to know something, church. You need to understand that a spiritual stalemate is a personal defeat. Now, I don't ever want you to forget what I'm telling you. When you are living in a spiritual stalemate, you are losing the battle. Satan is opposed to your spiritual development. Listen to me carefully. Satan is opposed 
to you gaining one step of victory. He's opposed to you living with joy. He's opposed to you finding victory over sin. He's opposed to you living with influence and impact. He's opposed to your spiritual maturing. And so he raises up giants to stand in your way. God wants us to move forward. Satan stands in our way. Do you know what giants do? Giants exist to stifle our progress. They rise up against us to keep us from moving forward. Now let me quickly explain to you how you see this in Goliath. How is it that a giant could rise up in, in your life or mine and cause us to remain stale and unmoving in our walk with God? Well, you we can see some examples in the example of Goliath. First of all, giants present as invincible opponents. They seem invincible. Would you agree with me? Goliath seemed invincible. Nine feet, nine inches tall, totally covered in armor, huge spear, huge sword, Shield in front of him. No way that he can be beaten. The greatest warrior the Philistines have ever put on the battlefield. He was seemingly unbeatable. And this is the way that giants present themselves to us in our spiritual life. You can't win. That's what they'll say. And Satan has told you this a thousand times. You will not overcome this. You will not find the victory. You will not be able. I don't care what others are doing. You will lose this battle. They present themselves is invincible opponents. Number two, they defy the promises of God. That's what they stand against. It's the promises of God that give us direction and power and strength. It's the word of God that carries us forward. And so what does Satan's giants do? They rise up in opposition to the, to the promises of God. This is what the Bible says in verse number 10. That Goliath said, I defy the armies of God on this day. The word defy means to taunt, to refuse, to resist, or to reject. God had promised victory to, Israel, uh, victory to Israel over the Philistines. He had promised Saul that Saul would gain the victory if he would be faithful. And in their moving forward in the promises of God, this giant stood up and said, no further. I defy the promises of God. Number three, thing that Goliath did, same thing that giants do in our lives, is that they threaten with intimidation. They threaten us with intimidation. That is that giants are very personal. Now I want you to think about this. These two opposing armies were vast armies, thousands of men, tens of thousands of men, maybe even hundreds of thousands, camped on these two hillsides, anonymous, faceless soldiers, until one giant comes and speaks to people personally. You come to me. You send me a man. I will defeat you. That's what he said to David. You come to me, boy. I'll feed you. To the fowls of the air. Can I tell you something about the way Satan operates to keep you from progressing in your walk with God? He doesn't really care about us as an army. He's not too interested in us as a congregation. He, he wants us to, 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 to be confronted in a very personal way. So he might say, I don't care how much victory there is at Brookstone Church, but he'll look you in the eye and say, you will not win. I'll destroy you. Yeah, you see your friends worshiping. Yeah, you hear them talking about their victories. You hear them talking about how God's using them. But you, he will say to you, you will lose. I will crush you. It's very personal 
It's very intimidating. And so here's my question for you. If giants rise up in our lives, intimidating us and defying God's promises and and standing in the way of our spiritual progress, what is the giant in your life? Answer the question, not out loud, but answer it. What's the giant in your life? What is it? I'm certain I'm speaking to people here today who have been in a spiritual stalemate for weeks or months or years, maybe even decades. Your spiritual life today looks just like it did a year ago, maybe weaker. It looks just like it did five years ago. You have not progressed at all. You are stuck. So what's the giant standing in your way? Because it's not the will of God that you remain stuck. It's not his plan that you don't experience greater victories and joys and freedoms. So what is the giant daring you to move forward? Let me suggest three quickly. I think these are the top three. Now, there might be many, many more. The the number one giant that's, that prevents people from moving forward in their spiritual life, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. Number one is unforgiveness. It's a giant. And I believe it's the number one giant because all of us have been offended. All of us have been hurt. All of us have been betrayed. All of us have been wounded. All of us have been wronged. And God looks at us and says, in the same way that Christ has forgiven you, you forgive. In the same way that you have been set free, you loose those people who have sinned against you and you have heard the enemy say to you, oh no, you don't. That can't mean you. Surely God wouldn't expect you to forgive that offense. Surely God would not command you to forgive that man. Or that woman, that person. And we begin to believe that lie. I can never forgive. I mean, I want to serve God. I want to be free. I want to be obedient. But I could never forgive that. And by saying those words, the giant stands up and says, you take take not one step forward. Because the giant of unforgiveness stands in our way. Number two, I might suggest to you, is the giant of fear. Never seen a day when so many people live in fear. Anxiety and depression off the charts. People living with medication in order to be able to function in the world normally, greater than ever before. Afraid of what's happening in our world, afraid of what's happening with our government, afraid of what's happening in our land. Fear is a crippling giant. It might just be fear of man. What will people think of me? If I do this, say that, move forward. If I live that way for Christ, how will I appear? What will, and we're more afraid of what people think of us than how God judges us. Or maybe it's just the fear of obeying God. God says walk in obedience. We're like, Lord, I'd like to, but I'm just afraid to trust you on that. Fear. It's a giant. Number three, it's doubt. Where we doubt God's goodness and We doubt God's mercy or God's power. We doubt God's faithfulness. Maybe it's other things, but I believe unforgiveness and doubt and fear are the three giants 
that rise up and oppose our spiritual advancement. And whether it's those three or another, here's what I want you to know. They have one agenda. is to keep you locked down. God is calling you forward. God is saying, come deeper with me. God is saying, be free, find joy, live with victory. And the giant stands in front of you and says, not you, buddy. Not you. And I want you to hear me. Those giants must fall. If we're to move forward, they must come down. And so let's talk as we close about how it is that we should be facing them, facing the giants. David arrives at the battlefield in this text in verse number 20. His brothers are there in the battlefield. His father sends him to see how they're doing. In chapter 17 and verse number 20, he arrives on the battlefield to see them at exactly the same moment that Goliath steps out of the Philistine army to challenge them once again as he's done every morning for 40 days. So David's there with his brothers and he hears this voice, the voice of Goliath, blaspheming and threatening and defying the armies of God. And just like every other morning, all of the Israelite army turned and ran from Goliath and hid in their tents except one man. And it was David. And when David heard the threat, are you listening? David heard the threat of the giant while everybody else ran that way. Here's what David did. David faced the giant. And some of you in this room, you've got to face what it is that's holding you back. In 1967, June of 1967, the modern state of Israel was 19 years old. It was formed by the League of Nations after the Holocaust in the 40s. In May of 1948, the nation of Israel became a nation for the first time in nearly 2,000 years. In 1967, it was only 19 years old. It was a tiny little, really insignificant and militarily weak nation. Didn't have a lot of power. In June of that year, three Arab giants, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, all began to threaten Israel at the same time. In a coordinated rattling of the sabers of war, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria all began amassing troops on their borders with Israel. They put their military fighter jets in alignment, in, in battle readiness, on their airstrips, ready to take off on bombing raids. Goliath was threatening David in June of 1967. Do you know what Israel did? They struck prematurely. They saw what was getting ready to happen, and this little nation of 19 years struck prematurely. Not one Arab fighter jet ever got off the runway. They destroyed them on the ground, destroyed their runways. They drove the troops back off their borders, and in six days of fighting, the Israeli army quadrupled the landmass of the nation of Israel, taking land from these three Goliaths of their Arab neighbors. They took the Golan Heights. They took East Jerusalem. They took uh, the, uh, the desert down uh, in Egypt, the, the Sinai. They quadrupled their landmass. And if you ask an Israeli today, 
what happened in 1967. Here's what they'll say. When we were 19 years old, about the same age as David in 1 Samuel 17, the spirit of David came on the land. And we defeated the Arab Goliath. I want to tell you, the spirit of David needs to come on some Christians today. And we need to see these, these giants standing against us. We need to see them fall. So how do, we, how do we stand against them in our closing few minutes? Write this down. We need to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to say much about this because I mentioned it last week. But we should acknowledge that when David stands against Goliath and all the other soldiers run... We ought to at least acknowledge that David had something that those other soldiers didn't have. He had the indwelling Holy Spirit because the Bible says in in 1 Samuel 16 verse 13 that the Spirit of God came upon David. He had the Spirit of God that allowed him to face the giants. And here's the good news. So do you. You've got him. You know what the Bible says in in, uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4? Greater. Everybody say the word greater. Shout it. Greater. Say it again. Greater. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The spirit of God within you is greater than the giant that stands against you. You need to face him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, not only face him in the power of the Holy Spirit, but face him in the power of faith. Trusting God. I'm going to believe that God can give me the victory. I love verses 45 and 46. And Goliath showed up and David heard him. He didn't whimper. He didn't whimper like all the other Jewish or Israeli soldiers. Every time they heard Goliath, they ran whimpering. Oh, who are we to fight against him? He's so big, we can't. They whimpered. David didn't whimper. He demanded, who does this guy think he is? He said, who is this Philistine to defy the armies of God? He stood against him in the faith of who God was. And when you read verses 45 and 46, David goes to confront Goliath and Goliath says, come here boy, I'm going to feed you to the birds. And he says, let me tell you something. You come to me with a big spear and a big sword and all your armor and the armor and the gods of the Philistines, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And let me tell you what he's going to do. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take your head from your shoulders. I'm going to kill all your buddies and we're going to win this battle today. He spoke victorious words of faith. Man, you need to learn to do that. When the giant stands against you, stop going, I can't forgive. No, in the power of the Spirit of God, I can have the victory over this. Well, I I, I can't, I'm just afraid. No, in the power of the Spirit of God, I trust him. I don't have to be afraid. Number three, we need to do it in the testimony of our experience. David goes to Saul in verses 32 to 37. He says, I'm going to go fight the giant. And Saul says, you're crazy. You can't go fight that giant. He's a man of war. You're just a kid. And David says, let me tell you about my God. I've been keeping my dad's sheep out in the fields. And a lion and a bear came and stole a lamb. And I chased them down. And I got the lamb out of their mouth. And when they rose up to try to kill me, I killed them. And the same God that gave me the victory over the lion and over the bear will give me the victory over this Philistine. Do you understand? It was those smaller victories that were the down payment on the largest victory that he needed. What's God done in your past? How's God given you victory in the past? Claim them, remember them, celebrate them because those things are the down payment on the victory that God will give you as you move forward. Number four and finally, we need to face the giants for the sake of God's glory. Can I just tell you, whether 
or not, you move ahead spiritually. Whether or not you live with greater joy and victory and blessing and influence and impact and fruit in your life is not only about you. It's about the glory of God. And if Satan can stand a giant up in front of your life and keep you in the stalemate you've been in for the last week or month or year or decade, if he can keep you where you are, he diminishes the glory of God. But if you face the giant and he falls and you move forward in your spiritual walk, then God's glory is is amplified. God's glory is spread through that victory. So David comes to Goliath in this passage, verses 46 and 47. He says, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to whip you. And I'm going to whip you for two reasons. Not because I'm good, not because I'm a good, good with a slingshot. Two reasons I'm going to whip you. Number one, so that all the earth may know there's a God in heaven. Because Goliath, you are an affront to the testimony of God. And you're going down because the world needs to know that there's a God in heaven. Number two, so that this assembly may know that God doesn't save with swords and spears. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Israeli army behind him in their tents with their swords and spears saying, we don't have the power. Our swords and spears aren't big enough to defeat him. He's saying, they need to know that God doesn't need their swords and spears. He doesn't win the battle with their swords and spears. He fights the battle himself. You need to overcome those giants so that the testimony of Christ will go forward and the body of Christ will be built stronger. Well, if you look at the end of the chapter, if you come down to verse number, we didn't read it, but if you come down to verse number 50, 51, 52, after weeks or months of a stalemate and fear and and intimidation and no progress and Goliath shouting his threats and everybody cowering, after months of that, David picks up a stone, pow, drops him on his face. And look at verse number 52. Verse number 52 says, And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued. Compare that with verses 20, 21, 23, 24. When they cowered and they whimpered and they hid. They went from cowering and whimpering and losing to shouting and pursuing and winning. Because somebody said, The giant is not going to stand in my way anymore. If you want to have a life like David, you better quit cowering before the giants. And you better stand in faith and stand in the Spirit and stand in your testimony and stand for the glory of God and say, whatever that giant is, unforgiveness, doubt, fear, whatever, that giant is fallen and I am moving forward.